Welcome to Retelling the Bible. I am your host, W. Scott McCandless. It is my hope that in this podcast, I can help people to see the Bible in new ways, to try and turn the Bible into a simple history book or a journalistic report on ancient events is, in my opinion, to rob this amazing book of its power. I believe that the people who wrote the biblical stories would prefer us to enter into the narratives, suspending concern, for the moment at least, for what actually happened, and focus on the powerful experiences of God that they were trying to describe. In Season 1, we are retelling the story in the Gospel of Luke of a journey made by Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It is actually a story that is described very briefly in the Gospel text, but that actually has a great deal of history and theology behind it. In this episode, we zoom in on an aspect of the story that is merely alluded to, but that in the first century people would have easily been able to fill in with rich detail. It all started when two young people were betrothed. Episode 3 The Betrothal The pretty young girl walks between her parents as they make their way across the village one late summer's day. They are going to a small house with a workshop in its courtyard near to the central square where the village synagogue is held. The house is well known because it is the place where the villagers usually go to get their farm tools and implements repaired. The girl, whose name is Mary, is wearing the better of her two dresses and walks with a purposeful stride. She knows that she is going to keep the most important appointment of her young life. She is nervous as any girl would be, if she were going to meet with the family of her future husband. She is also happy, because she has a strong feeling that this is the right thing for her to be doing right now. Neither of the two families has a lot. Mary's family has been settled in Nazareth for far longer than anyone can remember. They have their own little plot of land here, land that has been handed down from one generation to the next as a precious trust. In a good year, it can produce enough grain, olive oil, figs, and wine to keep the family going. In the bad years, everyone goes hungry. 
there have not been many good years recently. It doesn't amount to much, but it is the land that God has given to them. When they eat of its produce, they give thanks to the God who has been faithful to them down through the generations. At least they have land. So many don't anymore. Most of the people who have lost their land because of debts and other financial problems fall into the worst of situations. Many are just sold as slaves to cover their debts and lose all freedom and control over their lives. Others become day laborers, which is hardly better. They drift from place to place, getting work for a day or two wherever they can find it. Often, ironically, they end up working on the very fields that they had once owned, fields that have been bought by wealthy investors from growing cities like Sephoris. There are some families that do marginally better than the landless. They have the talents and skills, and even more important, the valuable tools that allow them to set up shop as artisans. That is what Joseph's family, the family of her intended husband, has done. When they lost their family property in Judea, many years ago, they just managed to scrape together the resources to resettle in Nazareth, rent a small house, and find work as carpenters. This certainly does not make them prosperous. They do provide vital services to farmers in the area in exchange for food, and they are even able to get occasional work in the city of Sephoris that Herod Antipas is rebuilding. When things get tight, they go just as hungry as anyone else, though. An alliance between Mary's family and Joseph's is not particularly advantageous to either party. But in a village like Nazareth, with only a few hundred residents, it's not as if there are that many other prospects. It has been concluded, some time ago, that the two should marry. The young people haven't been consulted in this decision. It is a matter to be decided between the two families. Their individual desires have nothing to do with it. Mary and Joseph have known one another for their whole lives. They played together when they were children. As they've grown older, the social restrictions that keep the genders separated have prevented them from speaking to one another but they have continued to notice each other, and each only sees good things in the other. Mary is quiet and introspective as she walks towards Joseph's home. This is nothing extraordinary for her. 
She has very deep thoughts and rarely shares them. She has long watched Joseph and admired him. He is a young man with strong convictions, a hard worker, and one who always insists on doing his very best in any project he is given. All the local people trust in his abilities and often specifically request that he work on a given job. Mary is content with how things have worked out. The trio arrives at the door and is greeted warmly by Joseph's parents. They enter and share a meal together. After some final details are worked out between the two fathers, the two young people stand before their happy parents, make their promises and pledges, and call upon God and their families as their witnesses and helpers. After all of the promises have been made, Heli, Joseph's father, rises to offer his blessing. He says the kind of thing that people always say on such occasions. He remarks on the beauty of the bride. He foretells the birth of many children. When he remarks, as people often do, that great things will come of this union, Mary and Joseph's eyes meet. Though they have not spoken with each other at all before this day, and here, only formally, there is an instant spark of understanding between the two of them. They both know that Heli's words are truer than he suspects. Mary leaves the home once again in the company of her parents. She is content to go with them for now, but is looking forward to the day when she will not have to return home at all. She looks forward to sharing her life completely with Joseph. Before that can happen, however, both of them will have to deal with a few surprises. We are told very little about Joseph, the father, or as some like to insist, the foster father of Jesus. The Bible, by the way, is actually quite comfortable calling him Jesus' father. We are told that Joseph was a carpenter, and that his family did not come from Nazareth in Galilee, but from Bethlehem in Judea. This is not much to go on, of course, but a little bit of historical awareness can help us to fill in a few details. 
ancient Judea and Galilee were subsistence agricultural societies. That means that the vast majority of the population were expected to live directly on whatever they were able to grow from the land. According to the Bible, every family was given a plot of land to live on, and they were supposed to keep that land in their family down through the generations. This was the ideal. Every single Israelite family was supposed to have its own plot of land, and that land was supposed to keep them fed in perpetuity. Like most ideals, this one didn't always work out practically. Sometimes, for various reasons, families lost their land. In a land-based agricultural society, this was always considered to be a disaster. It meant that such families had nothing and usually had to get by on marginal incomes, often resorting to day labor, though many lost their freedom and ended up as debt slaves. If Joseph's family is from Judea, but he is living in Galilee, that would mean that he is not living according to the ideal. He is not living on the land allotted to his family according to Old Testament law. It marks him as dispossessed, someone who has lost the only asset that matters in his world. Now, some of us might find that confusing because he is called a carpenter. In our modern experience, a carpenter is a skilled artisan, an independent business person who might well be able to prosper from his or her work. But ancient readers would have understood that this was not the case. The word that is used to describe Joseph does not mean carpenter in the way that we would understand it. It is simply a general word that is used to describe an unskilled laborer who works on construction sites. He might work with wood or with stone or some other material. The word has no particular connection to the idea of working with wood, but it was definitely not the kind of work that paid well. If Joseph was such a worker, that would mean that he was hardly well off. It probably meant that he was just getting by. That certainly fits with the idea that he is a disadvantaged person, someone who has lost the plot of land in Judea that once belonged to his family. Joseph, it seems, was hardly good marriage material, and marriage in that world was all about making deals and advancing the interests of your own family. Why then would Mary's parents choose to betroth their daughter to such a man? Were there no better prospects in the very small village of Nazareth? Perhaps. Or maybe there was something else, something in his character that made them choose him. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Join us next time as we take a fresh look at the story of a very special visit. If you are enjoying this podcast, please tell your friends and go rate us and write a review on iTunes. 
My name is W. Scott McCandless. You can reach me on Twitter at Retelling Bible or at the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. The theme music on this podcast is Ada by Kevin McLeod. The music that accompanies today's story is Rumination, also by Kevin McLeod. Both can be found at incompetech.com and are licensed under the Creative Commons. Here is the clickbait title for next week's episode. The unexpected guest looked her in the eye and said she'd have a son. I felt a shiver pass through my whole body.